Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning, whoever that was. Thank you, Eddie Dial. Eddie Dial, if you don't know Eddie yet, you will. And no, he doesn't own the soap company. So if you were wondering. If you have your Bible open to, we're going to be in two places today. We'll be in Acts chapter 6 first, and then we'll go to Timothy at the end and close out reading that passage. Uh, so go to Acts chapter 6, which is the uh, scripture that um, Ryan just read a few, few moments ago. Um, according to our governing documents, for those of you that might not know church polity or whatever, um, all churches, if they are incorporated with the state in which they function, in which they should be, according to the laws of the land, uh, they have to have a few things. We have to have a few things in order, and one of those are bylaws and a constitution. And in the bylaws, it's, it's, it's a very simple, for the most part, framework of how the church is supposed to operate. And uh, Parkway Baptist, is, or, or ours is very good. I read it thoroughly before I accepted the call here to be, to be pastor of the church. I was very, very pleased with the way they read. Um, and in that, there are some, um, some instructions about how the, the deacon ministry uh, is managed at our church. And one of the things that we have to do as a church body, uh, the membership of the church body, over the next couple of months, uh, is begin to um, form our deacon ministry for 2024. I was convicted last year, um, well, actually I was convicted a long time ago, but it's just one of those things that sometimes you have these things that you want to do and then it takes a while for you to get there. Can y'all, can y'all relate to that? You got these things you want to do, it takes a while to get there? Well, one of those was that I wanted to, to go into the scripture about what a deacon really is and about what the qualifications are of the deacon ministry so you would know when the time comes who you would nominate to serve in that role. Uh, so it's a very important, very important office. Um, so what we're going to do is, um, is go over those texts rather deeply today and next Sunday. Then we'll get back in Luke after, after that. Um, one other thing, well, let me, let me start over. According to our church policy, we have deacon nominations in August to prepare for the coming year. One thing I have learned through the years by the comments of other more experienced members and leaders is that many times deacon nominations have become somewhat of a popularity contest. Would you agree with that? Okay. With very little scriptural application to the selection of men for the office. So for the next two Sundays, I'm going to be in the, in the Bible and explain to you what it means to be a deacon. One other thing that I have committed to do personally in my brief time on this earth while serving the church is to return to the office of deacon the reputation the position deserves. Now, if that sounds weird to you, which it may, it doesn't sound weird to me because most of my life I have personally experienced or heard from other leaders horror stories of dealing with men that have been given the office of deacon and abused its authority and position, okay? making it a position of prideful control and power instead of humble service and prayer. Now, don't get me wrong, pastors can do the exact same thing, amen? Anybody in those positions can abuse it. But there are far more deacons in churches, in Baptist churches, than there are pastors. So if you have deacons that are there for the wrong reason, it can really cause a lot of problems in the church of Jesus Christ. Can anybody here relate to, to, to those problems? Can you say amen? Okay, so everybody can. I can, you can. So, 
Part of the responsibility of my call is to make sure that we do things in order of the Bible. So that's one of the things we're going to do. Our Baptist Faith and Message, Article 6, says the following. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Here's the whole reason why I put that Article 6 in there. Its two scriptural offices are that of pastor slash elder slash overseer. All those terms are used interchangeably. The New Testament sees all those positions in a similar, in a similar responsibility. And then the other one is the office of deacon, okay? So according to Scripture in our statement of faith, there are two offices of leadership in the church, the office of pastor, elder, overseer, and the office of deacon. So my reason in putting all this in here for you is so that you would understand the gravity that the office of deacon is the second highest office in the church. Is that a big deal? Yes. Say that louder. Is that a big deal? Yes, it is. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And how men are selected for both of these positions should be a very serious process derived directly from the Scripture. Now, what our bylaw says about this, I'm just going to, just, just very short, I'm just going to read this, then we'll be in the text. The bylaws, this is what our Parkway Baptist Church bylaw says. So if you're thinking about, if you're a member here, you're thinking about being a member here, this is something you want to know, okay? According to the New Testament understanding, the purpose of the deacon is to care for all church members and other persons in the community to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to lead the church in concert, that means harmony, unity, with the senior pastor in a spirit of fellowship, worship, witnessing, education, peacemaking, and service. How many of you like that statement? Raise your hand. I love that statement. I think that statement is fantastic. The active deacons shall be elected upon the basis of qualifications set forth in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12, and Acts 6, 1 through 7. Nominee, now these are the additional things that Parkway has put in here, which I believe are wise, and I've served several churches, and these are, these are all very similar to other things that I've heard. Nominees shall be at least 21 years old and be an active member of the church for at least one year. The church will have deacons assigned as is, pro is appropriate for the church size. The senior pastor and the deacon body will decide how many deacons are needed for the ministry of the church. And last year, we actually reduced the number of deacons to 12. And I believe that's, I believe that's the same number we're staying with, with this year. And that's a very good number for the size church we are. So each deacon is like a deacon family ministry, and every deacon is assigned a certain number of families. And their responsibility is to be in communication with those families uh, either either uh, if they're active in the church body every Wednesday or Sunday, and if they're not active, to call them and check on them at least once a month is kind of the pattern. And then we have deacons meeting once a month, and we come together, and if anybody has a need or if there's trouble or problems, we discuss those issues, and we try to handle them according to Scripture. Okay, it's a very, so far since I've been here, it's been a very functional, healthy thing that we have in our deacon ministry. Would you all agree with that? For the majority. There's, there's no perfect system, but, but for the majority it works. 
So also in our bylaws, it says, the deacons shall have the following qualifications. Be full of the Holy Spirit, which basically means they have to be saved, amen. Have compassionate concern for the work of Jesus Christ and his church. Be continually given to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So deacons need to know their Bible. Be of honest report, trustworthy, steadfast in convictions, and responsible in speech. Maintain a Christian home. Be faithful in the attendance and support of worship services and programs of the church. Support the church financially and through his tithes and offerings as defined biblically. So that's how Parkway regulates the office of deacon here at Parkway Baptist Church. So if you're a family here, or you're thinking about becoming a family here, you will be assigned a deacon. And that deacon is kind of like the, the point of contact. Like say you're sick for two or three weeks and can't get to church. What do you need to do if you're sick for two or three weeks and can't get to church? Who do you need to call? Your deacon, okay? We, I mean, we're not mind readers and we don't, we don't know the, the, kind, the, the individual struggles that each person has. So it's your responsibility to let us know what is going on so we can therefore get the, marshal the entire strength of the church to, to minister to you if you need that, okay? So that, that's, that's, what, that's what our deacon ministry here at Parkway Baptist Church is. Now, where does this office come from? Where does the office of deacon come from? This is where Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 comes in. Historically speaking, everyone agrees Everyone agrees that this was the genesis, so to speak, of the office of deacon in the New Testament church. So join me. You've heard it two times. You're going to hear it a third, and then we'll expound on these verses for the remainder of the time. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's a pretty, this is a pretty unique event in the life of the church, the early church. So the gospel, the, this is the book of Acts, and if you know the book of Acts, the, the whole, the, the key, the interpretive verse at the beginning of, of the book of Acts that, that all scholars believe is the, is the expansion of this verse throughout the whole book is Acts 1.8, when it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the book of Acts is about the gospel basically expanding beyond what? Jewishness. Expanding beyond Jewishness, okay? Going to the ends of the earth, going from Jew to who? Gentile. 
So Acts is about the gospel going from the Jew to the where? Gentile. So that's how you need to think about that. And, and the evidence that this was happening is clearly seen in Acts chapter 6 because in Acts chapter 6, we see the primary complaint that has happened is from the Greek-speaking believers toward the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were coming up short in the daily distribution of food. Which means we see in the gospel, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ bringing together different cultures into the church, which is exactly what it's supposed to do. Amen? Amen. So the church was growing. The Bible says the disciples were increasing in number. That's the whole reason why we're here, is to try to bring other people to know Jesus Christ, to see them enter into the discipleship process and walk with them in tandem, equipping them and helping them form a, a Christian worldview in their lives and then hopefully passing that on to their children and to their grandchildren and so forth so the image of God and the witness for Christ expands all over the world. And that's what we see. Amen. 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 See, out of the mouth of babes. Hallelujah. So the church was growing, the disciples were increasing in number. And whenever, and, and write this down, I mean write it down. Whenever there is growth and people are being saved, the enemy will always create resistance and problems. Can you amen that? In, in fact, I would go so far to say that that is an authenticating mark upon what you are doing as a Christian is if you are encountering resistance and persecution and difficulty as you walk with him and try to conform your life more to Christ, look for that bullseye to just hone in on you even that more from the enemy because he wants you to fail. He wants you to fall. And so right here, there is a, there is a seam there is a, a crack that the enemy can exploit and, and even, even make it look like it's done purposefully to be evil against one set of widows, for heaven's sake. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I see a widow picked on, man, the, 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 the grizzly bear comes out, amen? I mean, men, can you, can you amen that, men and women? I mean, when we see widows picked on, I, I mean... We don't stand up for widows. We are not worth our salt. Amen? We don't stand up for widows. We don't stand up for children. We don't stand up for the weak. We are not worth our salt. We need to shut this place down and leave and go do something else. So right here we see the widows being overlooked for, this, for this food, these food needs. And this is a complaint. So the problem, this complaint comes from the Greeks or the Hellenists accused the Hebrews of neglecting their widow in the daily distribution of food. Now, this was probably, this was probably an unintentional problem that had resulted due to some cultural distinction, which was most likely what? Language. Language. Have you ever tried to communicate with somebody that speaks a different language? How difficult is that? I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you ultimately end up trying to do? Sign language, right? And how well does that go? Not good. So most likely that's what's happened here. So notice, and here's something else we need to notice from this, okay? 
Notice that one of the church's primary responsibilities in New Testament times was providing what? Food for people who could not get it for themselves. I'm afraid that we have lost that in contemporary society. There's no question about it. We've lost it. But in the New Testament time, we clearly see that. So what was the solution to this problem? The solution to this problem was that the 12 apostles called an assembly. They called a business meeting. If it was in contemporary times, that's what we would call it. The 12 summoned the full number of disciples and explained the depth of the problem. And so what they said was, the apostles said said, their, their primary objective is to preach and teach the Word of God, is what they say, but that doesn't mean that we are not willing to serve people. You do understand that, correct? I mean, I have heard so many people take this and, and, and twist it in different ways. Even pastors sometimes will say, well, you know, the Bible says all we're supposed to do is preach the Word of God. We're not supposed to serve tables. Well, I mean, I, I, holistically, yes. So you mean to tell me that if I'm the only one up here on a Thursday afternoon and there's a fellowship the next morning and some tables need to get set up that I say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not supposed to set up tables. Is that what I, is that what I say? What do I say? Where are the tables so they may be set up? Amen? Right. So, so I mean, that's not to say that we don't occasionally do those types of things. In fact, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go one step further. Some of these younger pastors, now I'm 53, you know, like some, I'm, and, and all, all of you older folks always say, 53, you're so young. I don't feel young, okay? I feel 53, I feel like I'm getting older, okay? And I'm not a young preacher anymore, I'm 53. I like to think I'm a young preacher, but I'm not. But sometimes these younger guys, okay, they look out there and they see what we do. And they see us come up here wearing my Parkway Baptist shirt, my, my fake khakis and my shoes. Y'all didn't catch that. And, and, um, and they, hear, they hear us speak, whether we're good or not good, and man, they, they think we have just got it made, okay? They think we've got it made. They come to Wednesday night Bible study and they see us open the Bible and they see us expound on the scriptures and chances are it's something that we've done before, you know, so, so it's not something we have to put hours and hours and hours and hours of study into. There are, there are those passages that you have to do that. But most of the stuff that we teach on a regular basis, we've taught it before, so it's just not, it just doesn't require hours of study. But they see that, and they think that's all ministry is. They think it's dressing up nice, staying locked up in a room, studying books, and coming up here and delivering a message. Let me tell you what, that is a small percentage of what we do, amen? We counsel people, we're on the phone, we've got families, we've got children, we've got struggles of our own. It, it, it's, it's all over the place. And so when some of these younger guys come and they start, man, I, I really believe I'm called to, to preach. I'm like, really? You're called to preach? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, let me tell you what. Start coming to the church every Sunday and every Wednesday night and go talk to the nursery people and go talk to the children's ministry people and go talk to the youth ministry people and go talk to the senior adults and do everything they ask you to do for the next year. And then, after all that, doing that faithfully, not complaining, doing it joyfully, serving them joyfully, then if you still think you're called to preach, come talk to me and we'll see about some pulpit time. Because let me tell you something, brother. There's a rite of passage to be up here behind this pulpit, amen? 
You don't just, you don't just step from, from, from nowhere and step up here. There is testing and trials and difficulty, years of it sometimes, before you just take the pulpit and preach. Ministry is much more than just preaching the gospel. As we can clearly see from this text, the primary thing they were struggling with was doing what? Feeding the widows. Feeding the widows. Now that widow may love the way I preach, but I'm going to tell you what, my preaching is going to become null and void when she's hungry and not getting fed. Amen? Amen. So you see the point. So that, that's just a, an intro into this that is, so, that is so true. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. We know what they're saying here. It should not be the norm. It should not be the norm that your, that your preachers and your pastors are so, are, are so busy having to set up tables and serve tables that they can't give the proper time to study to preach the Word of God and pray. That's what they mean by this. And that's why they were trying to recruit other, other men to do this. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So we need some help is what they're saying. We need some help to make sure these widows are not neglected. So the Bible says, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom who we will appoint to this duty. Now notice, notice what they do. They gave the general church the task of selecting the men. Do you see that? The whole reason why I'm doing this, this Sunday, next Sunday is because we have deacon nominations which means those of you that are members of Parkway Baptist Church, there will be ballots that will be put back there in the back of the church. And, and before a certain deadline, you will be asked to go back there and put the names of men that you believe are qualified to serve as deacons in this church. That's the nominating process. So, so, so why, why is that? Well, it's because they didn't know everyone intimately. It's impossible for me to know everyone intimately. They didn't know everyone intimately, but the congregation most likely did know some of these people intimately. And so they were asked, based on these qualifiers, to pick out seven men of what? Good repute. What does that mean? Good, godly reputation. Y'all know what that is, amen? Are you sure? You're, you don't look like you know. Of a good repute. Somebody that you would want your daughter to marry. Does that help? Okay. Or somebody that you would want your son to marry. Does that help? Okay, men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. So again, this is not, and I, and I can't emphasize this enough because as long as I've been alive, people that have been in the church for years and years and years that, that I've known have always said this, that the deacon elections are a popularity contest. Okay? This is not a popularity contest. Some of the best deacons in the world are people that operate in obscurity that nobody knows or that very few people know. And it is possible that somebody is very popular, that lots of people know, that is qualified. But the point that I'm making is, is that the deacon nomination should not be a popularity contest. It is not a time to nominate someone because, and this is what you hear all the time, well, I've known them all my life, okay? Well, let me tell you something. I've known people all my life that I would never nominate for deacon, amen? In fact, I would say, in fact, I, I, let's have some evangelism counseling, amen? I mean, I, mean, it's, it's, I mean, I've known people all my life that I would never nominate for this. But I've also known people all my life that I would nominate to be a deacon. And so it's just, it's just we've got to be careful with that terminology. 
I mean, length of relationship is not always a qualifier. The qualifier is men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. I mean, you will need to know them for some time to discern whether they are qualified, but just because you've known them all your life can mean nothing. Let me tell you something else. You're not going to like this either, okay? Just because you like someone, just because you like them, doesn't mean they're qualified to be a deacon either. Can you amen that? It's true. This is not, this, here's another thing that you're not going to like either. You're going to like mo, mo, more of it though. It's just you're not going to like this. This is not a position not a position that someone should push for. Does that make sense? You should not be running around the church politicking, pushing, talking to influential people in the church to try to get a position on the deacon body. Do you know at the higher echelon of Baptist executive positions, we're talking about the big, the big money, big positions in the Southern Baptist Convention that help us to plot into the future on where we're going for missionary work and those types of things. Do you know one of the immediate disqualifiers for being considered for those high positions is? That that man is pushing for that position. They won't allow it. They'll take that man's name and that immediately disqualifies him from candidacy for the position. It has to come from other people that see the qualities in that man and say, this man may be somebody you want to talk to about this high position, then they will consider it. Because many times, pride and selfish ambition can creep into our hearts and us jockey for positions that we're really not qualified for at all. Do y'all follow what I'm saying? Now, to be an elder or a pastor, the scripture says something different. It says that you should aspire for that, which means it should be something in your conscience and in your heart that says, I believe that God is calling me to this. Because the, the qualifications of pastor, elder, and overseer are, are, are way more rigorous than it is for the deacon. A, a deacon does not have to defend doctrine. A deacon does not have to speak publicly regularly. A, a deacon is not an overseer over lots of things. They are a contributor to it all, but they're, but they're not what a pastor and overseer is. Now, that's not to say that a deacon could not one day be one. But it's just very important that you understand these things. This is, this is serious business. And if you've got somebody that's out there pushing and, and working in side rooms and trying to get the right people to say, hey, hey, put this guy as a deacon, that, it, that could, be, could be a bad sign. And then finally... The apostles, we will appoint to this duty. So, so the apostles are the ones that actually say, okay, yes, these men can be deacons. The congregation nominates, but ultimately the apostles were the ones that interviewed, talked to them, and made sure that they knew they were getting into, and then laid hands on them and commissioned them before the church of Jesus Christ. Are y'all with me so far? Amen. All right. So then the men that were chosen, the men that were chosen, said what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose seven Hellenists. Now, if you don't understand what that term means, 
I'm shooting from the hip as much as I can remember from history. I believe there was a queen named Helena from many, many years ago during the Greek time, and she was just, just very, she loved art, she loved sculptures, and she basically, under her leadership, she enculturated a lot of the ancient Near East, and her enculturing of the, of the ancient Near East was called Hellenism which is a very powerful Greek influence, the Greek language, uh, the Greek culture, all of that. That's where that comes from. So it became, became known as Hellenism. We, we know it more just to say Greek, but sometimes you will see that term, they're Hellenistic. And that basically was named after a queen, if I'm not mistaken. So you need to double check on me that. <laughs> Maybe I should have done it before I preached, amen? But anyway, Queen Helena was her name. So the men chosen, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas of Antioch. Then they had this ordination process. Who here has ever seen a deacon ordination process? Raise your hand. It's incredible. That's where we get the deacon ordination process from, is this passage and other passages in Scripture is where you bring the men who have never been ordained before. You bring them and all the other ordained men come. They lay hands on them and commission them into ministry, so to speak. So they, they had an ordination process. They set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them and then they are ordained to be a deacon. And the results, the results were wonderful, which is the whole reason why they did it. The results was the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly and then last, we see many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why would that be in there about the priests? Why would that be in there? Because when you think of the landscape of Judaism, who in your mind would be the most committed to the theology of their forefathers? Who would be the most committed to that for their lifetime? The pr exactly, the priest. So the point that Luke is making, and that's who wrote Acts, by the way. He wrote Luke, then he wrote Acts. Acts is like Luke part two. So the point that he's making is, is that what was going on in the church was so powerful, so visible and so powerful that the priests who were lifetime committed to Judaism saw what was going on in the lives of these Christians and they left Judaism and came over to Christianity and became Christ followers. Many people believe later some of these priests began to be persecuted, and so what did they begin to do? Leave Christianity and go back where? To Judaism, and many believe that the book of Hebrews, one of the primary reasons why the book of Hebrews was written was to these priests who had left Judaism, gone over to Christianity, got persecuted, and were in danger of going back to Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, don't do that. Don't be like the wilderness generation that almost got there and rebelled. Don't do that. Stay the course. Follow Christ. So the priest became obedient to the faith. So, so this bottleneck, this is a bottleneck, right? That, that's a business term. What's a, what's a bottleneck, anybody? You've got a manufacturing process, and there's this one little thing in the manufacturing process that's causing what? Problems, right? It's slowing down. It's a, you know, it's a bearing on a conveyor belt or something, and it's starting to burn up, and this one particular curve, it's slowing down, so production is hurt. Well, this thing with the widows, this, this was a bottleneck. 
This was a bottleneck in the process of Christianity and feeding these widows. And so they got together and they, they got the personnel together, the qualified personnel together. They ordained them and they sent them to fix this problem. And the solution worked so well, so well, that the, that the men at the top of Judaism, at the pinnacle of Judaism, the priests that ran the temple began to see the power in the gospel and they left and they came to Christianity. How many of you would like to see the gospel that powerful today in contemporary society? Say amen. amen. That it drew leaders, leaders from other non-Christian organizations that they would see the power, that they would see the effectiveness, that they would see the love, that they would see the life-changing gospel work so clearly that they would abandon their empty, heretical, religious works and come to Jesus Christ. That, that's the possibility of what we have here in the church of Jesus Christ. So, fast forward. Here we are in Acts 6. A very important person was converted in Acts chapter 9. Who is that, anybody? Paul is converted in Acts 9. Then Paul disappears to Tarsus back home because he was under death threats for several years. And then he's called back into ministry several years later, called back into ministry by a man named Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. And from that point begins several missionary journeys that resulted in churches being started all around the coast and inlands of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul would meet a young man named Timothy in Acts 16, and a few years later, they traveled together, and then Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, helping this young protege in the gospel understand how to, how to run, manage churches. And one of those letters is what we will look at next week. And I'm going to read it to you today. Take your Bible and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and this is where we'll stop today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. You're going to get out early, amen? All right. That, that wasn't very strong, amen? Okay, there we go. All right, all right. <laughs> amen, Nathan. Thank you, brother. Thank you. You got the scripture right today. I, I'll, I'll explain that too before we quit, just in case anybody was wondering. Deacon, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Deacons, likewise. Now, the reason why he says likewise is because for the first seven verses, he talks about the overseer, which, which you would apply to the pastor, or the position of your pastors here. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And that verse, verse 13 there parallels the priests coming to the faith, right? That's what that is. It's for the observers that are watching, for the people in this community. Parkway Baptist Church, man, they have got a great group of deacons at that church. 
I know several of them, they're great godly men. Of course, the converse of that is also possible, right? You know, I know a few deacons at that church up there, and my goodness, they are the most hypocritical, evil men I've ever known in my life. Now, which one of those do we want said, the first or the second? Absolutely, hands down, hands down. That's why this process and how we go about this is very important. I mean, this, this is not a game. This is not a, a, a political chess. That's not what this is. This is the church of the living God, and one day we shall go before him and give an account for everything that we have done here. Th that is the driving force behind my life, is the fact that I know that one day I will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for my actions, give an account for my words, as a gospel preacher, as a father, as a husband, as a friend. It's, it's serious. It's very, very serious. So deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons, I want you to eat, breathe, and sleep these passages over the next 30 days. Get your Bible out and have it at home. Get Acts chapter 6. Take, who's got your ribbon in your Bible? Amen. I hadn't picked on the ribbon in a while. You got a ribbon in your Bible? Go to Acts chapter 6, put the ribbon there, and then go to 1 Timothy 3. Read those passages and pray over those passages. And be prepared to nominate people. If the deacon ministry in the church of Jesus Christ does not function well, the church will not function well. If the deacon ministry and the pastoral ministry do not, are not in harmony and not in unity, this church will be split nine different directions. You do understand that, amen? Think about your family. If all your family don't get along, is that a trouble? Is that trouble? <laughs> Y'all didn't say that nearly loud enough. If all your family doesn't get along, does that cause trouble? Absolutely! Can make you miserable. Well, a smile won't come in your face for a month if your family doesn't get along. Your family's got to get along. It's got to be unified or it's, or it's miserable. Same thing in a church because all we are is a collection of what? Families. So be thinking about that. Now, before we close, earlier we talked about Psalm 22. Let me show you, let me show you where I was talking about on that. Nathan uh, shouted out, what did you shout out, Nathan? You said, yeah, that's what Jesus said from the cross. Isn't that what you said? That's right. All right, so just if you, were, if you were wondering, just before we close, Psalm 22, go there right quick. This is just an added bonus, amen? Do y'all want the bonus or not? Who wants the bonus? Raise your hand. That's not enough hands. Who wants the bonus? That's, ugh, okay, well, I guess the rest of y'all are just going to suffer through the bonus, amen? All right, Psalm 22. You look at Psalm 22, there is no question about this, okay? This is not scholarly interpretation. This is a fact because you can hear it from Jesus' lips. When you look at Psalm 22, what do you see there in the first couple of verses? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? That's the beginning verse of Psalm 22. When you look at Matthew 27, Beginning in verse 45, 
Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. Okay, and that's a language we don't understand. And then, then Matthew translates it for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus Christ from the cross points us as his followers to where? Psalm 22 and says, Psalm 22, when it was written, was about who? Me. So read that whole Psalm. When Tara and her daughters came up here and read 11 through 20, 22, man, the, the hair on the back of your neck should have stood up. I mean, read that. That's exactly what Jesus experienced. And one of the reasons why I'm so committed to this and why I love God so much and why I'm just, I'm, I'm here, I eat, breathe, and sleep it is because I know it's true. I know it's true. Because the prophetical material that was written thousands of years before Jesus came is fulfilled in him. And it's clear as a bell that you can see it fulfilled in him. I mean, it's not guesswork. This is not a bunch of guys locked away in a room and trying to do hermeneutical gymnastics to stitch it all together. These are the apostles called of God pointing back to the Old Testament and showing it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Can you go to bed at night knowing that, amen, and sleep like a baby, knowing that you are safe and secure in his arms no matter what befalls you, no matter what befalls those that you love that are his, we will all be together with him singing glory, hallelujah, amen? amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, how clear it is, how strong it is, how powerful it is. And Lord, I know that over the next couple months, next month actually we'll, we'll be choosing deacons for the next year of service. Father, I pray that you would help me be clear uh, today and next Sunday in presenting what your word says about that, Lord, so, so we do this right. Because we want to do it right. Because we love you and we want to honor your word. So thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, always, as every time we come together, Father, we want to have an opportunity for anyone that is here to come down this aisle and profess to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. Obviously, they don't have to come down the aisle. They can do it right where they sit. But we have this brief time of response, just as a window of grace, that those that are compelled may pray or receive you in your time and in your way. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.